guest with us today. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we'll be considering God's Word together. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under some seats nearby. And I invite all of you to join me to the book of Ephesians. And in the Bibles that are around the room, that's on page 976 in those Bibles. So join me in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be reading the second half of that chapter together as we continue to move through these books of the Bible, or this book of the Bible together. Why don't you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for this day and this time together. We're grateful to gather as your people. You have called us together, and we're grateful that we can now consider your word. We want to hear from you. We believe that your word is powerful. You spoke and you created the world, and you speak light into our hearts and light shines. And so we pray that as you speak to us through your word this morning, you would transform us, that our minds would be renewed, our hearts and affections would be changed, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold your glory in Jesus, and by your Spirit's power we would be transformed, that we would leave here different than we came in, and it would be for your name's sake and our good and the joy of all, that we, all the people we encounter this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 together. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, you non-Jewish people in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ bring healing and unity to a deeply divided culture? This may be the most important text in the Bible to answer that question. And we need this. Because the world is just as divided now as it was when this letter was first written. Our world, our nation, our cities, our homes, filled with division. 
ethnic division, religious division and divisiveness, generational division, class division, gender division, political division, all of these distinctions turning people hostile toward one another. And this text exists to show how Jesus is the hope for unity and harmony. Jesus alone brings peace, and He does it through the cross and in the church. That's how peace comes to the world according to this text. It comes through the cross, and it comes in the church. So this text shows us how the gospel brings harmony across ethnic, gender, age, culture, class barriers. It gives Christians, it gives us a radical countercultural vision for pursuing unity. It shows us how the message of Jesus is far more powerful in unifying than we may have known or have experienced even to this point. So this text urges Christians to celebrate the unity that Christ gives, and then to pursue that unity at practical levels with people who are different than us. So I want to show you two things that the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter has already said in this letter before this point to show us just how important this unity is once we come to this text we just read. So there's two themes in Ephesians that lead into this text, God's plan and God's power. So look at God's plan. If you look back at verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul is making a sweeping statement about God's purpose for human history, and he says that God has made known to us through Jesus His purposes for human history. And he says this, it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's purpose is to unite all all things in and under Christ, in context, the kingship of Christ. This word unity is this idea of everything being brought together under a heading or a summary point. So, the purpose of world history, as God has designed it and as He's revealed it to us in the Bible, is for everything to be brought into unity under Christ's kingship. And Paul mentions two realms here. Do you see them? He says all things, then he gets specific, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, that could just sound kind of like another way of saying everything. His purpose is to unite everything, you know, everything everywhere. But those are two specific aspects of the created world that Paul returns to over and over and over in this letter. They're not just general phrases to refer to everything. So, the heavenly places, the things in heaven in this letter… That's the place where the invisible rulers and powers, the spiritual forces exist. So it's the invisible to us spiritual realm. And so the purpose is to bring a form of unity, submission to the kingship of Jesus in this invisible spiritual world. What are the things on earth? Well, that refers through this letter to the visible realm we see and in particular to people. It refers to God's plan to unite divided people. God's plan to unite divided people groups. God's plan to unite people that are hostile toward one another. His plan is to bring a unity in and under Jesus Christ here on earth. So that's the first theme. This is God's purpose for human history, 
to bring unity among division. The second theme is God's power. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Paul prays that a number of things, and included in this prayer, is that these believers would know God's power at work in them. He says it this way, and that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. And he says that's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and enthroned Him as King over all things. He says, I'm praying that you would know that that power is at work in you. It's at work in the world. It's at work in your life. And Paul never actually officially ends this prayer. He kind of just trails off on this theme, continuing it. He carries that theme right into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, it's essentially showing us this. There are two ways that the power of God is at work in us. So if we want to know the power of God at work in us and toward us in the world, here's two ways. First half of chapter 2 gives one of them. Second half of chapter 2 gives the other. First, chapter, first half of chapter 2 we've seen the past few weeks. It's about a vertical reconciliation with God that God Himself has restored. It's Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. God's power is seen in the way that He raises us from the dead spiritually already. So the power raised Jesus from the dead physically. It will, de- will one day renew the world and raise us physically from the dead as well. But in the meantime, that resurrection power is broken into our existence, our reality, and God's powers at work in raising us from the dead spiritually and restoring us to God. Vertical reconciliation where there was hostility, now there's unity between God and those who trust in Him through Jesus. Now in Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 22, He shows us how the power of God is at work to bring a horizontal unity. He powerfully reconciles others to one another, who are different than one another. So look at this same movement of thought in this section. He's just said in the first half of chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he said, but God, verse 4, made you alive. That's the power of God. You were spiritually dead, minding your own business, staying aloof and stiff-arming God, and then He decided to make you alive. He had the gospel brought to you. He gave you a new heart. You believed, and here you are as a Christian, if that's your story. If if that's not yet your story, it can be. Even this morning, the Lord can do that for you as you trust in the Lord. So that's the power of God at work. You were dead, but God made you alive. Now look at the same flow of thought in the text we read. He said, remember that you you were far off, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near. So that but now is the second interruption of God's grace in this chapter, this powerful interruption of God's grace in the world. The first one is you were dead, but God made you alive. Now it's you were far off, but now you've been brought near. Horizontal reconciliation. So do you see this? The power of God at work, restoring us vertically in our relationship with the Lord, and then horizontally in relationships with other people. So when Christians unite with warm affection, with tenderheartedness across divisions of class, ethnicity, cultural background, other preferences, politics. When Christians can do that, that is evidence in the world of God's power. Put another way, only God's power can do that. 
in the world. So here's why this text is so important and this topic is so important for us. Because God's purpose for history is to demonstrate His power in raising dead people to new life and in bringing divided people together. That is God's plan for human history to display His own power in doing this. This was why He sent Jesus to come. This is why Jesus came. His purpose is both to reconcile us to Himself and to reconcile and bring peace to our divisions. And God's singular answer to our world's divisions is the gospel. It's Jesus, and we get to participate in this as His people. So now let's walk through this second half of chapter 2 together and see how this works. There's three movements in this text, and we'll just walk through each of those. This shows us the division, then the peace, and then the results. So first, the division. So Paul's writing to a church that has experienced this new unity. This city of Ephesus was a pretty diverse and divided place. People from various ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds And they've come together as the church, and now Paul's writing to them, and he wants them to understand just how incredible this is and to pursue this all the more. So he calls them to think about their past disunity, their past divisions in their relationships before becoming Christians. So the church in Ephesus had people from many different backgrounds, and the greatest division among them, perhaps, was this barrier between Jewish people and non-Jewish people, whom the Jewish people called Gentiles. Gentiles refers to all the people outside of those who were Jewish. So in order to understand the sharp division, we have to understand a bit of the historical backdrop to this. Very often the present divisions in the world have a deep and long history, and the same was true for the Jewish people and the Gentiles. This division went back many centuries. So here's a brief backstory in the division between Israel and the Gentiles. So God originally created the world good. Humanity was made with this beautiful, harmonious relationship with God vertically and with one another horizontally. And then through sin, division came. Adam and Eve immediately started hiding from one another and the Lord. So uh, the relationship with the Lord is broken, the relationship with one another is broken, and the fallout from this, we see immediately the next story after sin enters the world. In Genesis 4, we have two brothers, one murders the other. And then chaos comes after that, and nations are divided, and peoples are divided, and then in Genesis 12, God uh, tells us how He chose one man out of all these nations named Abraham, and He was going to make a special nation from Abraham's line, and that nation would be God's chosen people to bring blessing to the rest of the world, to the other nations. And we find, though, that that blessing will only come to the nations in the end when Jesus finally arrives. So until that time came, verse 12 described the situation of the Gentiles and all the other people outside of Israel. He says this, remembers, he's speaking to those who are in a church gathering who were Gentiles or non-Jewish people but are now Christians. He says this, remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ, the promises of the coming Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, like the promise to Abraham. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. So they were separated from Israel because they didn't have access to God's promises. Now, most of the Gentiles were completely unaware of any hope they could have had in coming to know those promises, but that was their reality, without hope and without God in the world. It's a reminder to everyone here who does not have a 
Jewish background that your ethnic heritage is outside of God's chosen people from the Old Testament. Christianity did not have a Western origin. We're grafted in. And Paul wants those of us who aren't Jewish to remember what that was like or what it would be like even now 2,000 years later if the Lord never did graft in the non-Jewish people into His purposes like this. So it's hard for us to imagine what it was like for them. And so Paul says, remember when you were completely without God and without hope in the world. Some of you can relate to that. Maybe you even personally lived for a long time without hope, without God in the world. Maybe you've not yet trusted in Jesus and you hear this language and you think, is that true of me? Um, maybe you experience that very clearly and you know that's true of you. And this is here to give you hope. There's many people who live in a, with a hopeless vision of the world. We came from nothing, we're going to nothing. It's an ultimately hopeless vision of the world. Very common in our culture. And the greatest tragedy is that we're disconnected from the God who made us. But Paul's doing more than speaking about the vertical relationship being restored. He's already done that in this first half of the chapter. So he's pressing now into this horizontal plane, this division that we had with others. So notice verse 11, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which was made in the flesh by hands. Now, be helpful to understand a bit of what's going on here. So for the Jewish people, circumcision was the sign that they were God's people. The Lord had called Abraham to circumcise his descendants. And so it was their identity badge. It was their citizenship papers, became their point of pride. They looked down on any non-Jews. They would call them the uncircumcision, probably as somewhat of an insult. And the division between the Jews and Gentiles was layered. It was religious, it was ethnic, it was cultural. In verses 14 and 16, Paul refers to a hostility that was between them, and this hostility was mutual. It wasn't just that many Jews pridefully looked down upon other people who were Gentiles. Anti-Semitism was also widespread in the first century. In that first century time even, there was an uprising of Gentiles against Jews in Alexandria. At another point, the emperor banished all Jews from the city of Rome. So that's what's kind of going on in the culture, in and around this time that Paul's writing this letter. And so we have, we have our divisions today as well. So tensions were high back then, tensions are high today. Back then it was racial, it was religious, it was cultural. Same in our world, in our culture today. Ethnic division, class division, cultural division, political division, generational division, and hostility brewing between them. Increasingly polarized. I mean, don't you sense this? Right? an increasingly polarized culture that we're living in, in so many of these ways. We feel it all over the country. We feel it in the Indianapolis area. We feel it in our smaller towns. We feel it in our church. We feel it in our families even. These divisions saturate our lives, and the divisions have endured through the centuries because of the human heart. The root of the problem, or a root of the problem, is pride. The Jewish people, rather than loving their neighbors, some of them felt superior to them, calling them the uncircumcision here. It was an insult. So they took the gifts that God gave them by grace, and that turned into a, an expression of pride for them. And we all do that. We take some part of who we are 
or what we've done, and we cultivate a sense of pride in our hearts over it. And we find ourselves propped up, postured in a certain way where we look down upon other people who aren't like us. And we often do this with the things that come to us by grace, don't we? For so many of us, the amount of money we have is a result of so many factors, many of which had nothing to do with us. We were born in a particular family, in a particular place. We had access to certain education. We had a connection to a certain kind of work. We had mental or emotional or physical capacities that were a sheer gift of God. So yes, we have maybe worked with what we've been given, but what we've had all along is sheer grace. And yet we then look at other people who aren't like us, who have a different color skin, or have less money, or who have more money, or who have less education, or have more education, and we feel a sense of superiority that divides us. And then this division often brews, and through many complicated factors, it escalates the tensions, and we end up unable to view others purely as those who are made in God's image, who share our common humanity and need of grace. And so the message of the gospel comes into the world as the one force that's able to bring peace. So let's move to that. So that's the division, second, the peace. Verse 13 begins with this great two-word interruption of grace, but now. But now in Christ Jesus. So God has interrupted our divided world by sending Jesus. And here's the difference Jesus makes. In verse 13, Paul's still addressing these Gentiles. They were those who were referred to as far off. Those who were near are the Jewish people. Those who were far off were the Gentiles. And listen to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. So God did not send a message to the world saying, get along already. God did not send a message saying, what is wrong with you? No, He came in Christ Jesus to accomplish the peace that we need, to bring the peace we need. And Jesus is Himself our peace, this says. And we see three ways the peace comes through Jesus, at least here. So first, it comes through the cross. Gentiles were brought near by the blood of Christ, he says. So these two incredibly divided people, the Jews and the Gentiles, were brought together through the cross. How? Well, there's a number of ways that the cross brings peace. Here's one way. The cross uproots the pride that is so often the source of hostile division. The cross says that we are all sinners, We are all equally under the sentence of eternal condemnation by God. And the cross says to every one of us, when we see Jesus on the cross, that's a message, it's a statement saying, this is what you deserve. Every one of you, without exception. The cross doesn't say, some cultures need the cross. The cross doesn't say, some people with certain color skin need the cross. The cross doesn't say some classes of people need the cross more than other people. No, the cross levels the whole world. And the cross also says this, you're not only equally condemned because of your sin, 
you're equally accepted through Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The cross says to everyone, you don't bring your money, you don't bring your culture, you don't bring your athleticism, you don't bring your accomplishments, you don't bring your status, you don't bring your age, you don't bring the floor plan of your house, you don't bring your gender for any special treatment. You don't bring any of that for special treatment. You are accepted by God by sheer mercy through the blood of Jesus. This means that people from all backgrounds are brought together under this same incredibly humbling message. The gospel, when rightly understood, kills pride, and it kills the pride that we use, that's cultivated in our own hearts, that props us up over and against others. So the peace comes through the cross. Second, it comes through Jesus Himself. Verse 14, beautiful statement. He Himself is our peace. I don't know the full extent to what that means. I want to think more about this. The gospel is not just the message of our sin and His grace. It's the message of Jesus. Jesus Himself is our peace. He has brought us together in this way. Jesus unites us. When we come to Christ, we look around. We're all coming from different directions. And then we look around and see who else has come to Him. And the Bible says, that's your brother, that's your sister. And so we look around and we see brothers and sisters from every class, every IQ level, every skin tone, every people group. Jesus Himself is our peace. Third, He's broken down barriers. Specifically, for the Jews and Gentiles here, verse 14 says, He has broken down in His flesh, through the cross, the dividing wall of hostility by, so here's how He did it, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, making one new man, one new humanity in place of these two peoples, so making peace. So some think that this wall of hostility was a wall in the temple that was standing at that time. There was a wall in the temple at the time that was a separation. It kept Gentiles out um, from a certain area. They weren't allowed. Paul may have that in mind. But I'm with those that think it's more likely what he mentions right here. This wall is the, as he puts it, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances Uh, So it's these older commandments God gave Israel as a nation, many commandments that functioned for their, their role in this story of redemption and for them to function as a nation and for them to be unique and set apart from the nations at that point in God's plan. And so these laws were about food and clothing and other cultural practices that kept them distinct. And what happened to the human, with those laws when it hits the human heart is that pride makes these distinctions Um, become more than they were even intended to be, and now hostility um, enters in. There's hostility between the groups. And now Jesus, since He's died and risen, this says He's ended it. He's now making one new group of Jews and Gentiles. Those distinctions are gone. They're brought together. Their main identity is now to be together, one renewed humanity. So this is what Jesus did. Through the cross, through Himself, through ending the older laws that that separated the Israelites from the nations, he's brought peace. And 
This was his intention. Maybe obvious to say, but it's, this is not a side note to the gospel. It's not just that this is a, uh, you know, an implication that we can take or leave. This is God's intention through the cross. Paul's saying that this was Jesus' intention, and this is, this is what he actually accomplished. Unity, where there was division, is the work of the gospel, is the work of the cross, is the work of Jesus. Verse 15 says this, he did it that, right, there's the intention, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And, another purpose, he might reconcile us both to God in one body. So, reconciled vertically to God, but reconciled together, not separate, separately vertically reconciled to God, but together vertically reconciled to God, brought together in one body. So, here's the point. Unity is not an option for Christians. Open-hearted ethnic harmony is not an option for Christians. It's a clear implication of the cross and the gospel, and even more than that, reconciliation and unity is part of the work of the cross. It's what Jesus accomplished for it. So, God's purpose through the cross is not just to save isolated individuals, but to make one new humanity, to bring people together across different lines of class and age and ethnicity and bring them in harmony together. So, God's intention through the cross was to end classism and racism. And verse 18 is a beautiful picture of this unity. For through Him, so through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So through Jesus, you see this, all three persons of the Trinity here. Through Jesus, we have access together to the Father in one spirit. Which is why when we think back about the history of racism, for example, in our culture, in our nation, and its presence in various forms today, that is anti-gospel because it's saying, yes, you may have full access to God, uh, and He may be happy to have you, and He's warmly welcoming you into His presence, but you don't have full access to me and my life and my home and my store. You see how that's anti-gospel. The gospel is the message that we need to press into our minds and hearts and work out the implications in our lives to end division. So that leads us to the last part. What is this? What's the result of this? Verses 19 to 22. Paul gives three images to describe Christians that, are, that should form our identity and how we think about who we are as Christians. And they're all communal images to describe our identity together in Christ. First, Christians are citizens of God's kingdom. So, some of you have been through the process of becoming citizens in America or another nation at some time, and some of you have had a hard time with this. In the Greco-Roman world, citizenship was more of a privilege than it is for us today. Very few people in Ephesus, this great city that Paul's writing this letter to, very few people actually were citizens of the Roman Empire. Many of them who were born in Ephesus weren't even citizens. It was reserved for an elite few. And for those many people who were not citizens… They didn't have any guaranteed civil rights and privileges. But here's what's true of you in Christ. 
you are a citizen of God's kingdom. And it's true of everyone in Christ. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Full privileges. There's no special room for the wealthy. There's no special room for a certain culture. This removes all sense of social superiority among Christians at the deepest levels. Second, we're not only citizens, we're members of the same family or household. Through Christ, God has brought people together not just to be citizens of the same kingdom, maybe then spending time further away from each other, but members of the same household. This is even more of a unified, intimate uh, picture, isn't it? Verse 19, we are members of the household of God. It's a relational image. In Christ, men and women, old and young, rich and poor, white collar and blue collar, black and Hispanic and white and Chinese and Japanese and European and Native American and so forth, all who trust in Christ are brothers and sisters in the same family, part of God's household. The inescapable implication is that we should treat one another like that. And this image of God's household is part of our new identity. It becomes more foundational to who we are as believers than whatever household you might be going to in a couple hours or whatever household you grew up in. For example, you may have a father or a mother or a brother or sister or son or daughter. All are part of your family. But if you are in Christ, those who are trusting in Jesus from within your family or without are part of this deep family unit that's going to endure forever. You now have the, have the deepest bond possible in Christ, which means this. Picture someone in your mind across the globe in another nation who looks completely different than you, eats food you never even want to look at, speaks a language that you would not be able to discern if you heard it, and that person is trusting in Jesus. This person then has a deeper bond with you than a family member who doesn't know the Lord. It's a brother and a sister. Uh, deep affection should be present. Very practically, look around this room. Just right now, let's all just look at each other. There isn't a lot of diversity on a lot of levels here, like many places in the world. There's some age diversity and gender diversity, some ethnic diversity and socioeconomic diversity. But here's the reality. Those who are most different than you in this room are your family, your brothers and sisters. And there should be a wholehearted, warm, affectionate bond that should be practically felt and expressed together. No hostility, no prideful posturing. Third image, we are God's temple. It's amazing. We're not like God's temple. We are, in some mysterious but real way, God's temple. And we are God's temple together. Verse 22, He says we're being built into a temple, and then he says, verse 22, in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So the temple was the place where people could meet with God. It was the place where heaven and earth were joined. And now the temple is not a physical structure in Jerusalem. It's right here. Not this room or this building. I never call this a sanctuary. This building is not a temple. The, the people together as the church are the temple. The holy place is when two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus. The holy place is the local church. It's the, the church of Jesus Christ. And so God indwells us individually and together as His people, as local churches. So what's the implication? Well, we need to see people who are of different cultures, classes, ethnicities, and so forth as those in whom God dwells and those who together with us are God's dwelling place. And He is happy to dwell in them and with them, and so we should be happy to share life with one another as well. Now, I want to give us just a few recommendations in light of all of this. could go on, and there's many, so I can encourage you to talk with one another over lunch or dinner um, today, grab coffee this week, just pull on this text and have a discussion about it, how we can each take steps forward um, in enjoying this unity that we have in Jesus. So, a few recommendations. First, let's be convinced deeply that pursuing unity in diversity and unity in the place of division is crucial and necessary and important. So let's be convinced that this work, this pursuit is necessary. Here's three reasons. One, it magnifies the power of God. Isn't that what we saw earlier? Remember, this is about God's power at work in the world. He doesn't just powerfully reconcile us to Himself. He powerfully reconciles us to each other. So unity across divisions magnifies God's power because it says, look around at this. Look at what we have. We didn't do this. We couldn't do this. This is not self-generated. Nobody's taking the decisive initiative to make this happen except God. And God's working in our hearts by His Holy Spirit to bring us together. God gets the glory. So that's one reason. Another reason is this. It enriches community. We're enriched when we pursue friendship with those who are different than us. I'm enriched through my friendships and relationships with both men and women. I'm enriched from my relationships with people from Ethiopia and Sierra Leone and Asia and Mexico and Honduras. I'm enriched by my relationships with people who are far more wealthy than I will ever be and who are also struggling to make it by week to week. I'm enriched by all of these relationships and, and you are or can be um, as well. Some of you may not have felt welcome in relationships, maybe even within groups in our church before, maybe because of your financial situation, maybe because of your job or your age or your skin color, and that grieves me deeply, and that shouldn't be, and we want to work together to welcome one another. Third reason is for this is pursuing unity and reconciliation together is an apologetic of the gospel. Here's what I mean. It demonstrates to the world the reality of God, the reality of the power that is at work in His people through Jesus. It shows the world that there is a place where unity can be experienced across all of these divides, where people can talk about politics and it will not sound anything like the news programs that we listen to, which if we talk and sound like them, that's a problem, by the way. Um, where, where there's a place on earth where people can come together and just be astonished at the open-hearted welcome and friendship that's felt 
across barriers that is hardly ever felt in other places this deeply. The world should say, wow, look at how they love one another. So, that's first recommendation. Let's be convinced deeply that this is necessary and important. Second recommendation, let's acknowledge how we have failed. As individuals, as groups, in your own heart, notice the prideful posturing that you have of taking some aspect of who you are that was likely sheer gift and making that a point of pride for yourself where you look down upon other people who are not like you. Let's lament the division in our past, either personally or our past as a nation. Let's confront lovingly bigotry in other brothers and sisters. So that's the second thing. Let's acknowledge how we failed. Third, let's celebrate our diverse unity in Christ. And there are a lot of ways that we can celebrate. We can plant churches in areas that are different than us. We can partner with churches and ministries in areas that are very different than us. We can pray for the global church. The church in the new creation is not going to look like the church in this room. It's not going to look like many churches on the planet right now because there is a global church that will then come together and express in a beautiful, powerful way the unity in Christ in the midst of this incredible diversity. Revelation 7 gives us this picture, 5 and 7 gives us a picture of Jesus reconciling and redeeming people from every people group and language and tribe and nation, and this picture of them around the throne and singing. They're not singing in English, right? Maybe a few of them are. I don't know what, Um, but it's a beautiful picture, and they're around the throne of Jesus who didn't look like me, distinctly Middle Eastern with a Galilean accent and unity around him in praise and worship and honor. We can each individually pursue friendship with people who are different than us, welcoming people into your home and into your life and asking curious questions about who they are because you want to know because you love them. Create, uh, celebrate adoption and uh, marriages across ethnic lines. Learn from people who are different than you. Read authors who are different than you. And then finally, let's invite others to experience the unity that we have through Jesus. This text is talking about the unity we experience as Christians together. But let's also remember that the gospel is a power that's to welcome others into this. It's it's to show the world that there's unity unity that they can experience with the Lord and with one another. The church is where unity is found. So it's not just the place where unity is found, it's the source of unity. So we'll we'll wrap up with this. Um, There was a man who showed us last week the power of the gospel for reconciliation and unity. You may have seen it in these past few days. A year ago, an off-duty police officer named Amber Geiger entered the apartment of Botham Jean. She said she entered accidentally, thinking it was her own apartment, and when she walked in, she thought that Botham was an intruder, and so she shot him and killed him. She's been found guilty for murder. She was just sentenced to 10 years. And last week, Brant Jean, Botham's brother, gave an impact statement in the courtroom. I encourage you to watch that. You can find it easily online. He said later that he didn't know the cameras were on. I mean, this was not for show at any level. Uh, He did it, he said, because he, he knows the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he knows what it means to show the power of the gospel. So he decided to speak to Amber, to the surprise of his family, even. He said he needed to say something to her. And here's what he said. 
If you truly are sorry, I can speak for myself. I forgive. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. So, so here is an 18-year-old black man speaking to an off, to a former police officer, a white woman. And he's saying, if you're truly sorry, I can speak for myself, I forgive. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he'll forgive you. He went on to say this. And I don't think anyone else can say it. I'm again speaking for myself, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say, I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I presently want what's best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be, and listen to this, to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he said this, if this is possible, can I give her a hug, please? And he embraced her, and she embraced him. Now, there's many important conversations, even currently going on about that moment. Some people are responding very differently. Some are understandably conflicted about this whole event. Even Botham's family members are holding various priorities in tension in this moment. But what I'm drawing attention to is simply this aspect of it. It's what Brandt is teaching all of us here. He's showing us the power of the gospel. He's showing us how Jesus alone can bring healing and reconciliation. He has been freed to forgive. That's how he described it in an interview later. He said this, I know that every time I ask God for forgiveness, he forgives me. So who am I not to forgive someone who asks? I waited one year to hear I'm sorry, and I'm grateful for that. And that's why I forgive her. And then he hugged her, and he said that he hugged her because he wanted her not just to hear his words of forgiveness. He wanted her to actually believe him. He said that just saying it may not convince her, but he wanted to give her a physical display of forgiveness so that she too would be free. So this is the power of the gospel, not just to say that we like unity, not just to say that we appreciate the unity Christ gives us, but to experience it, to make it believable, to show that we believe this. And that's going to take intentional steps for everybody. And we have the privilege of God from God to pursue this together. So let's unite our hearts now and our minds together in prayer to this Father through Jesus in the Spirit. Father, we thank you for your power in making us alive and in bringing unity. We thank you for your wisdom in displaying your character in the world through the way that you save us. We thank you for your purpose to unite all things in and under Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of being a church family. And we pray that you would surprise us by the power of the Spirit with how you help us individually, together, and with others to experience the peace of Jesus. 
for your namesake, for our good, for the joy of all peoples. Amen. Let's stand together to receive benediction. And we're a few minutes over, so uh, those of you who have children to pick up, please make your way quickly there to honor those who have been helping. May the love of our Father and the grace of the risen Lord Jesus and the unifying fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Go in peace.